Hello, and welcome back to History in 7. Often when I'm teaching environmental history and I talk about cities, I focus on issues that people don't normally think about, like water and waste. Water has often been overlooked because for most of our history, it's been very abundant and very inexpensive. Uh, but it was a vital resource that was indispensable for early cities in America. In, additional, in addition to reliable sources of food, America's cities required plentiful year-round supplies of drinking water. Many inland cities such as Detroit, Chicago, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh were built on the shores of rivers or lakes. Coastal cities like Boston and New York, however, were often surrounded by seawater or by brackish salt flats. They relied on shallow surface wells that quickly became inadequate for growing populations. And the wells were also frequently fouled by the population's waste. Just as vast quantities of food had to be delivered to growing city populations, equally prodigious volumes of waste would need to be removed. And in addition to providing drinking water for residents, as American cities grew, water systems came to play a crucial role in waste disposal. One of the earliest ways water aided sanitation was that waste was often simply dumped into rivers, lakes, and the ocean. When New England textile mills flushed their dye tanks into the Merrimack River, they were only doing what people had always done. The amount of poisons that they threw into the river may have been unprecedented, but the practice was nothing new. People throughout history have traditionally dumped their waste in water, where bacteria and marine life have broken down the waste products and returned them into the ecosystem. Water provides an effective natural recycling process for organic waste until the volume of waste becomes too large for the ecosystem to purify. Although new industries like the textile mills often contributed new and changing types of waste into the natural purification system, the largest source of stress was usually the growing population. American cities grew tremendously in the early 19th century. Boston had fewer than 25,000 residents in 1800. By 1850, there were nearly 137,000, and by 1900, over half a million. New York City grew from 60,000 in 1800 to 515,000 in 1850 and 3.4 million in 1900. San Francisco began the 19th century as a village of 897 people. In 1850, the year after gold was discovered in the Sierra foothills, the city had reached a modest population of 21,000. But by 1900, San Francisco also had exploded to nearly 343,000 residents. Coastal cities often contended with challenging environments, especially when they began to grow. Boston was originally built on a peninsula surrounded by ocean and salt marshes, anchored to the mainland by a very narrow connection at the city's southern tip. New York City occupied the southern tip of Manhattan Island, but the city's rapid growth quickly exhausted the island's shallow, easily contaminated wells. Yellow fever and cholera epidemics in the early 1830s convinced New Yorkers that they needed a new water source. And between 1837 and 1842, the city built an aqueduct and a reservoir to carry and store water from the Croton River, 41 miles away. 
the gravity-fed aqueduct supplied a receiving reservoir located at what's now the Turtle Pond in Central Park, and also a distributing reservoir on Fifth Avenue between 40th and 42nd Streets. With granite walls 50 feet high and 25 feet thick, the distributing reservoir looked like a fortress guarding its 20 million gallons of fresh water. The wide promenade at the top of the reservoir's walls became a popular destination for Sunday morning socializing. The Croton Reservoir was used until the 1890s, when it was torn down and replaced by the main branch of the New York Public Library and by Bryant Park. By 1844, more than 6,000 homes of upper-class New Yorkers had been connected to the public water distribution system, and public bathing facilities had been constructed for the poor. Providing public water added to New York's challenges, though. Initially, most of the water closets in affluent houses were connected to cesspools and pits that had originally been built for solid waste from privies. The small cesspools were almost immediately flooded by the volumes of water and waste flushed into them. Responding to the complaints of its most affluent residents, the city allowed connections to its storm sewers, but the conduits designed to carry excess rainwater were far too narrow and the corners clogged too easily. And then there were the pigs. Since the 1810s, city authorities had been trying to outlaw pig keeping in New York. For generations, poorer city residents had turned pigs loose to forage on garbage until they grew large enough to slaughter. The animals were kept not only in the more open rural areas north of the growing city center, but lived in basements and spare rooms in crowded tenements. Pigs were dangerous, attacking people and even occasionally killing children. But they were a low-cost food source, and they disposed of more waste than they created, so they were tolerated. When another outbreak of cholera in 1849 was blamed on these roving scavengers, efforts were resumed to ban city pigs. But removing the animals from city life didn't happen overnight. Police conducted raids throughout the early 1850s, finding over 6,000 hogs hidden in cellars and garrets in lower Manhattan. The animals were driven north, and the west side district between 50th and 59th streets, known as Hogtown, was raided and shut down in the 1850s. By 1860, pigs were illegal south of 86th Street. We'll talk more about the growth of cities. But I hope that has been interesting for now. So thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time.